Remember when I was saying, do you just stand there quietly? Or do you hum or you just go, ah. There you go. People say, why don't you have the kids mic'd up so we can hear them? That's why. <laughs> Half the time they are just standing there. And the other time they're doing a hoedown. You just never know what you're going to get with the preschoolers. But those are our little angels. We're talking about angels today. Talking about these otherworldly spiritual creatures who are neither divine nor human. They're something other. They're God's messengers that he sends out to, to tell us things, and they are superior to us, but they are not to be worshipped. And if you missed any of those previous messages, as always, watch them online on our website, YouTube, Facebook, listen to a podcast, Spotify, anything like that. Here's the thing. People can get very wrapped up in the whole angel thing, though, all these supposed angelic visitations, and we're actually warned against that. The Apostle Paul writes this in Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visitations puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Why that's important is because a lot of people claim that angels visit them, but it's not true. In fact, did you realize that two of the major world religions, at least, probably more, are based on supposed angelic visitations? Islam and Mormonism, right? So 600 years after Jesus was born, Muhammad was in a Saudi Arabian cave and claimed that the angel Gabriel visited him and told him that God did not have a son. In complete contradiction to what Gabriel actually told Mary that she was going to have the son of God. Now Muslims believe in the virgin birth, but they don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. And their book, the Quran, claims to be the words of God revealed through Gabriel. But Islam does not teach what the Bible teaches. It does not offer the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. It, it does not teach that Jesus saves you, but that you must save yourself. So it's a salvation by works. Now about 1800 years after the New Testament was written, you have a man named Joseph Smith in New York claiming to have a vision from God. Now, the story has changed different times. We don't know if it's Jesus that showed up or the Father and the Son or one angel or two angels, but whoever it was showed up and said, Christianity has gotten it wrong all these centuries. Joseph, you're the one that's going to restore true Christianity. And so a few years later, an angel supposedly named Moroni showed up and revealed to Joseph Smith, that there were these golden plates hidden away in this secret location that had new truth, new revelation, a, another witness to the gospel. And this became the Book of Mormon. In fact, the angel provided Joseph Smith with a special pair of spectacles so that he could translate what was on these golden plates. Of course, we don't have the plates and we don't have the spectacles, but we're just supposed to take their word for it, that this is the word of God, and that the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, are now the true church. All the other churches have been wrong. Even though it's named after Jesus Christ, they don't believe in the same Jesus Christ in the Bible. Jesus is not God. 
We're not saved by grace through faith in Jesus. No, it's a salvation by works. You have to save yourself. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. We were warned about it, that people would claim to have encounters with angels and that they would preach another gospel and a different Jesus. Paul writes in Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so Islam and Mormonism and every other religion that teaches another gospel and another Jesus are under God's curse. It's right there. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11 says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So maybe they did have angelic visitations, but it wasn't the right one. The true message of Christ is found in the New Testament, which does begin with the angel Gabriel showing up to the old priest, uh, Zechariah, in the temple, saying, you and your wife are going to have this miracle baby in your old age. He will grow up to become the forerunner of the Messiah. You'll call him John, John the Baptist. Then a few months later, Gabriel shows up to Elizabeth's younger relative, Mary, and says, you're the one that's going to give birth to this miraculous messianic deliverer and savior, the son of God. So those were the first two appearances. There is a third appearance of an angel, and this time it is to Joseph. And if you want to turn in your Bibles and read along with me, we're going to put it on the screen as well. This comes from Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start in verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, and by the way, when it says they were betrothed, and that's her husband, but they weren't fully married yet. Betrothal back then was like engagement, but more serious and more legally binding. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he didn't believe the story about being a pregnant virgin. Come on, who would? He didn't believe that an angel had appeared to her and said, she's going to have the Son of God. Obviously, she is lying. He feels completely betrayed by this. And not only is she lying, it's a blasphemous lie because she's blaming God himself for getting her pregnant. This was ridiculous. He knew he wasn't the father. Some other guy had to do it. You know, the book of Proverbs long ago warned about the dangerous fury of a jealous husband. Joseph really could have gone off about this. And nobody would have blamed him for it. He could have publicly accused her, shamed her, disowned her. And by doing that, he would have exonerated himself, saying, wasn't me, it's all her. But he didn't do any of that. His compassionate spirit prevailed. And instead of putting her up for public disgrace and scandalous scorn, he decides that he's just going to walk away, move on, and yes, that will protect her, but it will still make people assume that he was the baby's father. So in verse 20, it says, but as he considered these things, ready to walk away, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, God had spoken in dreams before. I mean, Jacob had that dream about angels going up and down a ladder to heaven. 
He spoke to specific people through dreams, but let's, let's not, you know, make it seem like God speaks to us in dreams all the time because we've already seen in the book of Hebrews that in these last days, God has already spoken to us through his son and that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So we already have God's revelation, all that we need for faith and practice given to us in the New Testament. We should not be expecting any new truth, any new revelations. Dreams can be pretty interesting, but don't read into them too much and and interpret them as this is a message from God because it's most likely not. You know, dreams can just be weird. It's just, you know, your subconscious trying to work some things out. It's your mind messing with you. I mean, just this past week, I had a dream about I showed up to church to preach and didn't have any notes. And then I actually was supposed to speak at a conference, and I had notes, but I couldn't make any sense of them, which, frankly, isn't that much different from most weeks. But it was pretty terrifying, right? And I remember when I was younger as a DJ at a radio station, I would have dreams about getting locked out of the radio station and just dead air going out. You know, it's just the fears and the worries that that are being worked out, just weird stuff. But Joseph's dream was definitely different. It was vividly clear that this was a vision from God. But notice, poor Joseph, he always kind of gets left out of things. Yes, he gets an angelic visit, but it's not from Gabriel, it's just some unnamed angel. And it's not in person. It's just a dream, so there's no back and forth dialogue going on. It's just like, listen. And so here's what the angel says to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So, you know, Mary has been telling you the truth. I mean, how would he ever trust this girl if the angel hadn't confirmed this story? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, today, we choose baby names usually just because they sound good, but back then they had a lot more meaning. And the name of Jesus means his mission. The angel's telling Joseph and telling us, Jesus came to save. That's what it means. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through by the prophet And this is the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Another important meaning means God with us. So this had been God's plan all along, to come to this earth, God in the flesh, to save us. Now, um, we find out Joseph's reaction to all of this in verses 20, the, the last few verses here of 25. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel commanded, because he's an example of obedience. He took his wife, but knew her not hmm, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So I kind of feel bad for Joseph, because he's the overlooked person in the nativity story. Uh, it's almost like he's the afterthought in all of this because he doesn't get the same kind of you know, visitation as the others. He's, he's the kind of guy in the background, never says a word. I mean, we don't have any quotations from him. And you might think that, well, Joseph, he's really not that important. He's really not needed. Because let's face it, out of all women in the world, Mary didn't need a man. She really didn't need a man at all to become a mother. But God made sure to provide her with a good godly man, not only for her sake, but because Jesus would need a good man to be his father. All children do. Not all children get that, but they should. So 
What did Joseph have to fear about marrying Mary? Well, he's concerned with God thinks about all that first, but then he's obviously wondering what other people are gonna think about this. He's gonna lose his reputation if he goes through with this marriage because they're either gonna see him as the guy that got her pregnant, that he's immoral, or they're gonna view him as a cuck. And you know what, that's, that's short for a cuckold. That's an old-fashioned word for a man who is being taken advantage of by his wife, who, whose wife cheats on him and he just lets it happen. You know, that he, he is, he's simping hard for Mary, right? He's like, he's, it looks like he's submissive, he's effeminate, here he's showing all his devotion and affection and attention to this woman who's not returning it, who's cheating on him. And so he's gonna, if he goes through with this marriage, he's gonna deal with those two things. Either he's, a, he's an immoral, godless man, or he's, he's a cuck. And he's gonna hear all those scornful words all his life, he's gonna feel that, that those whispers and the innuendo and all that gossip. He's gonna be attacked. And it really does seem that Satan's strategy for attacking the family usually begins with the man. Because if the man is indifferent to the things of God in his spiritual leadership, well then he's neutralized. And that's all the devil's gotta do, he's gotta neutralize us. But when a man of God gets serious about his commitment to Christ, it's gonna affect his whole family. That's why uh, you can expect attacks if you're a committed man of God. It's gonna come. There's a bullseye on your back. And that's why our main point is it takes courage to be obedient to God. I mean, come, let's face it, men have received mixed messages for a long time about what it means to be a man, to be masculine, to be a husband, to be a father. Let's face it, for several decades, there's been a whole lot of anti-male, anti-family feminism that has created chaos and confusion. Women who have said, we don't even need men. And we're at the point now where we can't even define what a man is or what a woman is. It is poison to denigrate masculinity and femininity and say that they're not important and we're all the same and no different. Those are the kind of lies that have made both men and women less happy. And so many men have lost their way and are in crisis. And we see it in all the stats that men are less involved in the workplace than women are. They're less involved in school than women are. They're not getting married. They're, they're just putting it off or not doing it at all. Like, what's the difference? What does it matter anymore? They're involved in porn like never before. And, and they don't know how to lead anymore. Right? The male leadership is viewed negatively and suspiciously. Now, in recent times, there has been a counter reaction to all that, a kind of a masculinity movement as a rejection of so much, you know, hatred of men and feminized version of modern manhood. So there's all these popular now online influencers, both men and women, who defend men for being men and are offering all kinds of encouragement and advice, especially to younger men, on how to be a man of value, uh, how to date a woman, how to find a good woman, what you bring to the table, and younger boys are just soaking all of this in. Some call it the red pill movement, some call it the manosphere, but uh, what they often will do then is they swing the other way and they start faulting women for, for all these problems and blaming promiscuous women and those who are providing pornographic content and those who are, who are always uh, gold digging and blaming men for all of their problems and having all these unrealistic expectations uh, to have these high value men and women who have never been trained on how to be a wife and they don't know how to submit to a husband so that he can be a husband. 
And so while this, this masculinity movement has, has some pretty good diagnoses of the problems, they haven't always come up with very good solutions. It's, it can tend to be a worldly overreaction and end up blaming women for everything, which creates a lot of contempt and misogyny. Uh, let's face it, there's just a whole lot of worldly wisdom out there that uh, is circulating, and that's why the apostle John writes in his first letter, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, that's from the world. But that's the stuff you're going to hear in the world. There's a better way. There is a biblical way to view manhood and womanhood, not from the culture, but from Scripture. And boys especially need godly men that they can look up to. And women want men that they can look up to, that they can respect, at least good women do, being a high-value man doesn't mean that uh, you've got to be tall and muscular and make a lot of money and fit all the worldly stereotypes about, you know, bragging on your sexual conquests and all your your side hustles and your your business adventures and hunting and sports and cards. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We need men to be like Joseph, righteous gentlemen of honor and integrity, and courage, and faith. It's not to be passive or soft. We don't bow the knee to this woke culture, to feminism, or to hypermasculinity. We don't live for the approval of women or of men, but only of God. And when I see myself, see my value through Christ, that's what makes me a high-value man. I'm not high-value because of what other people think about me. Because look, I know, I know who I am. I know I'm not all that. But I know who I am in Christ. And so I know I have high value because of what he thinks about me and what he's done for me. And that gives me a strength. My strength comes from the Lord. I have a solid conviction about things. And I don't back down, I don't apologize for it. I have a spine, I have a backbone. I'm gonna stand up against this culture and stand up for what's true and right and good. I'm gonna push back against the darkness because Christianity is not a religion for weak men. It's not a weak religion. Christians are not to be pushovers. We, we, we even see this though in so many churches who are succumbing to the spirit of the age who are going for this weak, watered down version of Christianity that's afraid to stand up for anything, that's afraid to go against the culture, that adopts the ways of this world and really has no respect for God or for his word. And yet the strength we have, it's under control. That's what meekness is. It's under control because women can be victimized by men whose masculinity gets out of control, that's unchecked by God. Godly men do not abuse, use, or exploit women. Biblical manhood is God-designed so that women can actually flourish. See, I want to honor God in my home, in my family, in my job, In my finances, I want to be able to provide for my family and protect my family and spiritually lead my family as God has called me to do, which enables my wife to trust me and my judgment and defer to me and let me lead as God's called me to do. Only because I am already in submission myself to Jesus Christ, the perfect man. See, we we see the sexes as complementary, not as egalitarian. And if you want to call that patriarchy, okay. But all I know is Christian civilization 
It, it has men using their power for women, not against them, to make the world better and easier for women. Christian men love their wives, they cherish them, they value them as Christ does the church. So we don't have to manipulate or show off or demonstrate dominance. Yeah, I know when I say these kinds of things that, uh, yeah, I might get insulted, I might get mocked, but that's okay. So did Jesus. He says, don't retaliate, don't return evil for evil, because that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Weak men go with the flow and do what everybody else does and fly off the handle and, and get out of control. Weak men do that. Strong men keep it together, have that strength under control in submission to Jesus Christ. And that's a tough thing to do. But we understand that our real fight is not against other people. They're not the enemy. Our fight is against not flesh and blood, but against these spiritual enemies. So we trust God to deal with people justly. Joseph He's a model of manhood because it, it took a lot of courage to be obedient to God, and it still does. The Bible says he's a righteous man, which means that he was a man of integrity who disciplined himself to do what God wanted him to do, which meant he obeyed and went through with marrying Mary. That wasn't easy. And yes, they married young. I mean, we've talked about how Mary was probably a teenager, young teenager. Joseph was probably fairly young himself. And he said, well, that, uh, that's not good, is it? Marrying young like that? Hold on. Again, don't buy into the culture's way of looking at marriage. The culture will tell you, hey, don't get married young. Have your fun. Enjoy yourself. Focus on your career. Put off marriage as long as you can. Well, that's not a very healthy way of looking at marriage, is it? And I think our society is paying the price for that. There's a whole lot of people who feel betrayed by this culture saying, no, don't worry about marriage at all. And they've missed out on so much because of that. Listen, I got married when I was 21, and my wife was 19, and we've been married 38 years. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying... I'm not saying getting married young is for everybody, and I'm not even saying marriage is for everybody, but I'll tell you, when you are grounded in godliness and based in biblical wisdom, it works. And I know it works because here's the stats. Look, the longer you put off marriage, you know what's gonna happen. You're gonna be, you're gonna be tempted in impurity. You're gonna end up living together, which is why couples don't get married anymore. They just pretend to be married by living together, right? So who has the lowest divorce rates in America right now? It's couples who are serious about their faith in their 20s without living together first, they have the lowest divorce rates in America. So there's the proof. Now, Joseph and Mary's marriage may have appeared to be a shotgun wedding, had to get married, and Joseph's going to share in the same shame as Mary. It's going to be heaped upon them, but Joseph's faith enabled him to overcome that stigma and that mocking and go ahead and step in and take responsibility for that child. Did people ever believe Joseph's story? Probably not. Did he ever gain, regain his respect and reputation as a man of God? Not likely, but he did it anyway. In fact, we find out later in Luke 3 that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. They carried that stigma the whole time. And the Jews on at least one occasion missed the point in John 6. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So see, they didn't believe the virgin birth. 
They assumed Joseph was the father and she got pregnant before she got married. So they, they carried this the whole time. And listen, one time, Jesus got on the Jewish leaders, pointed out their hypocrisy for wanting to kill him, and he, he implied, your father is Satan. And they said, our father's not Satan. We're children of Abraham. God is our father. We're not illegitimate children, which is probably a slap against Jesus. We're not illegitimate like you are, boy. I want you to listen to a side note about Joseph's integrity. He didn't have union with Mary until after Jesus was born. Why? He had every right to. He could have. But he wanted to make sure that people knew he was not the father, that this was a miraculous birth. He didn't want any mistakes made there, so he restrained himself until after the birth. And then they had union, which shows us that sex is a beautiful, pure gift from God within the boundaries of marriage, because Mary did not stay perpetually a virgin, as some might teach, because Scripture says they had four other sons together as well as some daughters. So Joseph stepped into that difficult role of being a stepdad to a child that was not naturally his. It's not easy to step into being a stepdad. That situation's not ideal. There are a lot of risks involved for men. They risk their time, they risk their money, they risk their legacy for a child that is not naturally theirs. But some men will step into that because there are some women out there who are good godly women, single moms, who are looking for a good godly man to help her raise these children to know, love, and serve the Lord. And it's gonna take a strong man to do that, to be a father figure to that little boy or that little girl or that teenager. They're needed for that. Now Jesus was not naturally, biologically Joseph's child, but Joseph became a real father to him in the sense of being an adopted son. And adoption is a wonderful thing, and we talk about that around here. In fact, two years ago, for our special Christmas offering, do you remember this? We started an adoption fund for our local Christian couples because it is so ridiculously expensive in this culture to adopt a child. It should be the, one of the easiest things in the world. I mean, you do your due diligence, but make it cheap, make it inexpensive, but no, it's expensive. So. We started a fund that you contributed to, and I told you some time back that there was a couple interested in the fund, and, and it's a couple, good couple, who had been part of our church for a long time, but uh, they're now elsewhere, they're at another church in the area, but everything finally this week went through, and we sent their adoption agency a check for $10,000. You helped make that possible. That's an awesome, awesome thing. And we'd like to be able to do that for more couples, so let us know if you're interested in that. Joseph protected Jesus, and we know that because you know, an angel shows up to him again in another dream and says, get your kid, your wife, and go to Egypt, get away from King Herod's murderous search for your child, and then after a while, after Herod died, another angel appeared in the dream and says, okay, you can go back home now, but he protected them. And Jesus, even though he wasn't linked to Joseph by his DNA, this is the kind of God, man that God chose to raise his son, one that he could look up to as an example. Jesus even seemed to follow in his footsteps in his career as a laborer, a carpenter kind of thing. So God didn't just choose any man to do this. He wanted a man who's personality would help mold and shape Jesus to be the kind of man that he should be, a good godly man who would provide and protect and be a role model for the Son of God. Joseph was that kind of man. 
one that could be trusted to that, who wasn't afraid to live for God, who knew the right way to live, lived it, and didn't care what other people thought, didn't care about the cost. He cared about being righteous, and God is still looking for righteous men like that today, righteous women too. It takes courage to be obedient to God. I tell you, there are so many people today who have daddy issues, right? I mean, I've told you how many times I've met with men, and I'll ask them about how their relationship with their dad was, and a few of them have positive ones. There are some really great dads, but by and large, most men had not very good relationships. They, they have memories of distant dads, detached dads, domineering dads, absent dads, abusive dads, Dads that they can never seem to please, that, that never showed any affection or encouragement. And that's a crying shame when that happens. You miss out on a lot when you don't have a good dad. And I've told you, I didn't grow up with a dad from the time I was four. My dad was disabled. I had nobody around to show me how to be a man or how to be a father. And that's what we've got going on today. Is, uh, these young men growing up, they don't know how to be dads because nobody showed them how to be dads. They don't know how to be husbands. And so they, they look for these substitutes and these warped cultural definitions of manhood. And you have all these daughters who were craving attention and affection from their dad, and they didn't get it. So what do they do? They go off and look for it in the arms of another man. These daddy issues can have devastating consequences and impact people for life. So dads, don't underestimate the power of your influence and example in the life of your child. Kids need strong, encouraging, supportive relationships with responsible fathers. And I want to thank God for good fathers, adoptive fathers, stepfathers, foster fathers, and any man who becomes a father to the fatherless. That's awesome. It's so important. And we're grateful for that. We need more. And fathers, you gotta, you gotta understand how much you represent God, right? Joseph was the closest thing to Father God for Jesus. And so there, a lot of people have problems thinking of God as Father because of their poor father relationships. And so dads, when we fail to reflect God well, it impacts our kids greatly. And maybe the last thing you ever wanna think about is God's my Father, it makes you sick to your stomach. But I want you to know you have a father in heaven who's different, who loves you deeply, who, who would rather die than live without you. He's not some distant, detached dad out there. He, he wants to be right there in your life so close. I mean, I, you know, I have a granddaughter named Abby, and she finally just spoke her first words recently. What were they? Dada. Right? Just like my two boys. Their first words were dada. Moms get ripped off all the time with that because dada is just easier to say than mama. Right? It's, I don't know that that's a coincidence because in every language, it's that way. In the Aramaic language, which Mary and Joseph and Jesus spoke, guess what the word for dad is? Abba. Very easy to say. Abba. In fact, Abigail means my dad's joy, dada, abba. It's no mistake that the Apostle Paul calls God our abba, father. He loves you. He'd do anything for you. He, gave his, he sent his son into this world to provide your forgiveness, your abundant eternal life through the cross, through the resurrection. 
He, he loves you so much, he wants to make his home in your life, to, to make your heart his household. He wants to provide and protect you, protect you from all your enemies, demons, death, hell. Hey, would, you, would you invite God to be your Abba today? Would you put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior, to repent of your sins? Because Scripture says if you do that, there's a party in heaven. Jesus says in Luke 15, 10, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ. You saw him in the videos. That could be you today. We got everything you need for that. Text us, email us, come up to the front at the end of this message while the music is playing or come up after the service is over. Meet with somebody. They'll answer your questions. They'll pray with you. You can become a Christian, rededicate your life to Christ, whatever it is you, you need to do. And speaking of angels, would you be an angel this week and go out and be a messenger and spread the good news of Jesus, invite people here, send them to that website, christmasanddownriver.com, send them a text, give them a call, share a social media post with them, say, we would love to have you come with us next weekend. There's four services, Saturday and Sunday. It's gonna be a great way to bring our families together and a meaningful way to start the holiday. Let's pray about all that. Lord, we wanna thank you so much for Christmas. I know the, the culture has corrupted it and messed it up and mocked it, made it into something that it never should have been. But God, here, we really get a focus on the true meaning that you sent your son into this world, Jesus, to be the Savior. And we thank you for the example of Joseph, Lord, uh, that he was a godly, righteous man and Mary, a godly, righteous woman. And help us to be more like them. God, I'm praying for our for us as parents and grandparents for families that uh, we can better reflect uh, the, the love and grace and goodness that you have for us as our Abba. But Lord, it's difficult in this world to be biblical and not go along and be worldly. So give us that courage to be obedient. And that salvation that you bless us with, God, help us to share it with so many others May there be so many people here next weekend because we've been angels to them. We pray it all in your son's name. Amen. Stand, stand with us.